Now, friends, as we get underway here today in the epistle to the Colossians, I should remind you, I think, first of all, that this is one of the prison epistles. You will recall that we said Paul wrote Ephesians in prison in Rome. He wrote Philippians there, and he wrote Colossians there. And we have yet to take up another very small epistle, a very personal one, and that's Philemon. And these four apparently were carried out of Rome by four messengers. It was about the year 62 A.D. Four men left Rome unobserved, and they were carrying very valuable documents. Tychicus was carrying the epistle to the Ephesians over to Ephesus, where he apparently was either the pastor or leader of the church. And Epaphroditus was carrying the epistle to the Philippians, for he was the pastor of the church there. And Epaphras was carrying the epistle to the Colossians, because he apparently the leader or the pastor of that church. And then Onesimus was carrying the epistle to Philemon because that was his master and he was returning to him. Now, these four epistles, they're bound together, actually, and in them you have the anatomy of Scripture. Now, those of you that have my little book on Ephesians, you know that we've attempted to put these epistles together and look at them in a very definite way. You have, I think, in the epistle to the Ephesians, actually the church, which is the body of Christ. And in the epistle to Colossians that we come to, the emphasis is upon Christ, the head of the church. And in Philippians, you see the church walking down here. That's Christian experience that you have And then in the little epistle of Philemon, you see Christianity in action. You get right down to where the rubber meets the road, friends, or where the sandals in that day touch the Roman road, and you see it being worked out in a pagan society. Now, these four documents have been called the anatomy of the church, if you please. I will rather agree with that. And actually, they belong together. I don't suppose that Brinks ever carried four more valuable documents than these were. Had you ever stopped to think that if we had in our hands today those four documents, as Paul wrote them, as they came from his hand, you could probably get any price that you want for them. And you would have the wealth of a king. Well, we measure it in other terms than the dollar sign. The spiritual value of them cannot be estimated in human terms at all. Now, I want to say by way of introduction several things concerning this place of Colossae. I have not been to Colossae. I've been in sight of it. I have seen it from a distance. That is, the ruins of it as it stands there in the gates of Phrygia. It actually is over in the same area where Laodicea is and Hierapolis is. 
Here was a great civilization and a great population were in that area. It was more or less the door, called the gates of Phrygia, it was the door to the Orient, to the east. And here indeed the east and the west met. And here's where the Roman Empire attempted to tame the east and to bring them under subjugation to themselves. Now, it was a great fortress city, the same as Laodicea, the same as Philadelphia, the same as Sardis, the same as Thyatira, and the same as Pergamum. These were great cities of defense against invasion from the east. But by the time you come to the period of Paul the Apostle, why the danger had been relieved because the Roman Empire was pretty much in charge of the world at that time. And so these people lapsed into a paganism and a gross immorality at that time. And the city of Colossae was typical of the great cities of that day. Now, as far as the record is concerned, Paul never visited that city. And when I was in that area, I could understand many things in the Scripture that I could not understand otherwise. Why didn't Paul visit it? Well, Paul came in to the north of Colossae. He did not apparently come in through the gates of Phrygia. He came in over at Sardis on the Roman road that is over there. And that apparently was the way that he went to Ephesus. Now, Paul never was in the city of Colossae, yet he's the founder of the church there. Now, this man Epaphras apparently was the leader and could have been the direct founder. But Paul founded this church very much like he founded the church in Rome. He touched multitudes of people in the Roman Empire who gravitated to Rome, and they formed the church. Now, Paul, well, he may have gone to Laodicea, I doubt that very seriously. But from Ephesus, there in the school of Tyrannus, he lectured for two years. In fact, he was in the city of Ephesus for three years. And you don't appreciate this until you go over there and see what a tremendous civilization was in that area. Actually, the culture of the Roman Empire was there. It was no longer in Greece. Greece had pretty much deteriorated, and the philosophy and the culture had deteriorated. But it was virile in what we call today Asia Minor, Turkey, as it is specifically at the present time. So that in this area, Paul did the greatest work together with his co-helpers. There was with him, of course, John Mark and Barnabas for a time, and then he had with him Silas, and he had with him Timothy, and apparently some of the other apostles joined him. John became pastor there in Ephesus later on, and he's obviously buried there. Now, this was a great area, and it was a great area for heathenism, paganism, the mystery religions centered in that area. Now, there was already abroad that which was known as Gnosticism. And there was this sect in Colossae. This is the first heresy of the church. 
and there were many forms of Gnosticism. And in Colossae, there were the Essenes. And there were three points of identification of them. They had an exclusive spirit. They were the aristocrats in wisdom. They felt like, you know, that they were the people. They had knowledge, you know, in a jug, and they had the stopper in their hand. They felt like they had the monopoly of it. And as a result, why, you find that they were super-duper in knowledge, and they thought they knew more than, of course, any of the apostles. And Paul's going to give a warning about it over in the first chapter, verse 28. He says, "...speaking of Christ, whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Jesus Christ." Now, perfection is not in a cult or that type of a thing, but actually in Christ Jesus. And if you have any wisdom, it's in him. Now, the second thing I should say concerning the Gnostics there, the Essenes, they held speculative tenets on creation, that God did not actually create the universe directly, but he created a creature who in turn created another creature And that creature created another creature, and Christ was one of the creatures in that long series of creations. And that is what was known in pantheistic Greek philosophy as the Demiurge. You may or may not have heard of it. And then there was another identifying mark of this group. Their ethical practice was asceticism. They were influenced by Greek stoicism and also by unrestrained licentiousness, which came from Greek Epicureanism. And they were pantheistic in their thing. Now, actually, friends, Christianity today sails, I think, between a Scylla and a Charybdis. And that is, there is always the danger, on one hand, of Christianity freezing into a form, into a ritual. And it has done that in many areas and in many churches. It's nothing in the world but a ritual and a form. And all you do is just go through that, and that's it. And then, on the other hand, the other extreme, there's always the danger. It will evaporate into a philosophy. And today you have the philosophy Well, as one man said to me, he's a liberal, he says, what theory of inspiration do you hold? And I said to him, I don't hold a theory of inspiration. I hold that the Word of God says that it is a revelation of God. That's not a theory. Now, there are theories of inspiration. And that is the other danger. And there's a danger of it freezing into a form and evaporating into steam. And you find, on one hand, the ritualistic churches. On the other hand, you find liberalism today, and it's just become a philosophy with them. Now, actually, the Lord Jesus, you remember, made this statement. He said, I'm the water of life. Now, he didn't say, I'm the ice of life. Now, ice water is pretty nice, and a lot of people like a beautiful ritual. And if you've got something to go with the ritual, it's fine, provided it's Christ. 
but the ritual is eyes. And we must remember he's the water of life. And then when you heat water, you get steam. And he never said, I'm the steam of life. He is the water of life. And that is water at the temperature of life, at neither freezing nor boiling. But it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. And that's to walk down the street where you live. And I hope it's not freezing, and I hope it's not boiling. (laughs) This is bringing Christ down to where we live. This is getting right down to the nitty-gritty. This is getting right down where the rubber meets the road, friends. And that's where we want it today and where we need it today. There's always the danger of adding something to Christ or subtracting something from it. And the oldest heresy is always the newest heresy. Christianity is not a mathematical problem of adding or subtracting. Christianity is Christ. And Paul will say in this epistle, "...in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In him dwelleth all the pleroma." You get all you need in Jesus Christ, by the way. Now, this is something I think that's very important for us to see. Now, let me give you a quotation from someone that has spoken on this epistle, Dr. Sandy. He says in the Ephesian epistle, the church is the primary object, and the thought passes upward to Christ as the head of the church. In the Colossian epistle, Christ is the primary object, and the thought passes downward to the church as the body of Christ. And the dominating thought in this epistle is, Christ is all. (laughs) He's all I need. He is everything. Charles Wesley, in his lovely hymn, put it like this, Thou, O Christ, art all I want. More than all in thee I find. How wonderful. That's what this epistle is going to tell us, and it's a proper epistle to follow the Song of Solomon. And if we can learn, as Spurgeon put it, he says, Look on thine own nothingness and be humble, but look at Jesus, thy great representative, and be glad it will save thee many pangs if thou wilt learn to think of thyself as being in him, accepted in the beloved, and find in him our all in all. A letter I read, this dear lady right here in Pasadena, 80 years old, doesn't expect to live much longer, but she's now resting in his loving forgiveness. You can't find a better place to rest today, my friend, than in him. And when you find that, you won't need to go through a ritual. You won't need to do a lot of gyrations and genuflections. won't be necessary. And you won't need to discuss the theories of inspiration. You either believe the Bible is the Word of God, or you don't believe the Bible is the Word of God. Let's cut out this so-called intellectual approach that we have today. It's no good. I started out as a pastor like that, and I'll be honest with you. I had an elder that came to me 
and he talked to me about it. He said, you know, we'd rather have a genuine Vernon McGee, as bad as that is, rather than an imitation, somebody else. You see, I was imitating somebody else. And we just don't need to do that. We need to be ourselves, and we need to get down off of our high horse. And remember, he's feeding sheep and not giraffes. This is a very wonderful epistle, by the way, that we're coming to. And I think probably I ought to get my foot in the door here, at least in this first study that we're having in it. And probably we ought to go over and look at the outline of the epistle. Now, this epistle divides itself as all of Paul's epistles can be divided. That which is the doctrinal section and that which is the practical section. Now, in the doctrinal section, you have the first two chapters. And we read in that section, Christ, the fullness, the pleroma of God, in Christ we are made full. Now, we'll see the divisions under that. Then in the practical section, we see Christ, the fullness of God, poured out in the life through the believers. And that's where we need to break the alabaster box of ointment in the world. You know, the world not only needs to see something today, but it needs to smell something. And I tell you, the pollution of this world is smelling very bad now. We need something of the fragrance and loveliness of Jesus Christ in the world that only the church is permitted to do it. So many of us need to break that alabaster box of ointment. Now, let's get underway here in the introduction. First eight verses. Now, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timotheus, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, which are at Colossae, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'm sure you recognize that this introduction is strangely familiar. We've already had it two or three times in the epistles of Paul. He doesn't get very far from it, and we need to pay attention to it, I think, each time, and I won't go into a great deal of detail. Paul calls himself an apostle of Jesus Christ and always by the will of God. Paul was in the will of God when he was an apostle. And the important thing today, are you in the will of God when you're serving Christ? Are you sure you're in the proper place? Are you sure you're doing the proper thing? I believe every believer's call to function in the body of believers. And it's important to function in the right way. We've got too many people active doing something they're not supposed to be doing. They just think, I've got to get busy doing what brother so-and-so's doing. Well, my friend, I'm sure that our gifts are different. All of us have different gifts. And I think we're going to function a little differently, but we ought to be functioning. And it's marvelous to see how this man, he is an apostle by the will of God. God made him an apostle. Now, did God put you where you are? And you may be in business. And when you know you're in the will of God, there'll be a deep satisfaction by the way. Now he says to the saints and faithful. Now, who are the faithful brethren? Well, they are the believing brethren. 
The saints and believing brethren, they're the same. He's not talking about two groups of people. And we're not saints because of what we do, but because of our position. The word means set apart for God. To those that are set apart for God and the believing brethren, and they're the same ones, they're in Christ, but they're at Colossae. The important thing is not where are you at, but who are you in. That is the thing that's important. may not be good grammar, but it sure is good Bible. Now he uses this very formal introduction, "...grace be unto you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ." Now, you must know the grace of God to experience the peace of God, by the way. Now, he says it's from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, actually, in the better manuscripts, and our Lord Jesus Christ is not there. And that, my friend, is very important to see. Because, you see, the heresy that Paul was counteracting was Gnosticism, first heresy in the church. And this was the Essene branch of it. And they relegated God to a place far removed from man. You had to go through emanations to get to God. And have you ever noticed that all heathen religion and most of the cults like that, they have some sort of an open sesame before you can get into God. Well, may I say to you that Paul makes it very clear here that this is directly from God, our Father, and we can come directly to Him, by the way. Now, in verse 3, he says, "...we give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ." We go directly to God. You don't have to go through any form of emanation at all. If you are in Christ Jesus, we have access. That's one of the benefits of being justified by faith is access to God. And it's through our Lord Jesus Christ, as he makes it very clear here. And he says, praying always for you. Now, if you are making a prayer list of the Apostle Paul, put down the Colossians. He always prayed for them. They were on his prayer list. Now he said, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which ye have to all the saints. Now, I would emphasize that in a very particular way here. He's going to talk about the good points of these folk. And he puts together here, if you'll notice, faith and love and hope. And if you notice that, hope is in verse 5, for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, and whereof you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. And may I say the truth of the gospel means the content of the gospel, the great truths that pertain to the gospel of the grace of God, by the way. Now, you'll notice something, I think, here very important to see. Paul's talking now about their good points, and rightly so. They had faith toward God, and that is, by the way, for the past. Faith rests upon historical facts. God has a shut-up to a cross, and it's to believe God. You see, you haven't heard the gospel 
unless you've heard something to believe, not something to do, something to believe. It's what he did for you and me 1,900 years ago. Now, faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. It's not a leap in the dark. It's a resting upon historical facts, and it's believing God. Now, that's for the past, but there's love for the present. And you notice he speaks here of that, and your love which you have to all the saints. And, my friend, it's almost, I think, nonsense today to talk about how fundamental we are and then to spend your time crucifying the brethren, attempting to find fault with them, attempting to call them something less than you are because you are a wonderful saint and they just have not measured up to your high standard and they're not separated like you are separated. My friend, the world today is not interested in that approach The world would like to know whether you love each other or not. And the hypocrisy today of fundamentalism is it loves to knock the brains out of some brother and shows very little love in many places. Now, there are many men I disagree with about one thing and another. I can't expect them all to be perfect, of course. So I should bear with them, therefore, and pray for them. And I asked a man that, oh, he came to me to criticize one of the leaders today. And I don't agree with that leader on many of the things that he does. But boy, the Spirit of God's using him in a mighty way. And I asked him, I said, do you ever pray for him? Well, he says, of course not. Well, I said, I think you ought to. I think you ought to pray for him. God is using him. The Spirit of God is using him. And friends, these Colossians, they had some good points. And they had faith toward God. They were sound in the faith. They were fundamental. But they had love for the brethren. And that's important. And that is for the present, you see. Now, there's hope for the future here. Paul puts these three graces together. For the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. And I'd like for you to notice a little thing. Over in the 13th the 1 Corinthians... He lists these three there, but he lists them a little different. Now abideth, faith, hope, love. These three. He puts hope second, love last. Why? Because love's the only thing going to abide. It's the only thing. It's not only for the present. It's going to make it into eternity. So we need to begin to exhibit that down here upon this earth. How wonderful this is. Now he says, for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, and that hope is the blessed hope, looking for the coming of Christ, and we're to love his appearing also. Whereof, he says, ye heard before in the word of the content of the gospel. Now, the gospel is a simple gospel. It's true. And you're asked to believe. You're asked to believe certain facts. But there are a lot of facts that are connected with the gospel. He's virgin-born. He performed miracles. He's the God-man. And he died on a cross. He was buried. He rose again. He ascended back into heaven. He sent the Holy Spirit into the world on the day of Pentecost to form the church. And he's sitting today... At God's right hand, now that position is given to us 
because of the fact that our redemption is completed. And we are asked today to enter into that rest that he offers to those that will come to him. But he has a present ministry of intercession for us, and I think other ministries. And then he's going to come again. And that is all part of the glorious gospel, the content of the gospel, as Paul puts it here. Now he says, "...which is come unto you as it is in all the world." Now, that's a very strong statement. Dr. Vincent, a great expositor of the epistle to the Colossians as well as others, he believes it's hyperbole. And I'll be honest with you, I had difficulty accepting that. You mean to tell me, Paul, that the gospel at this particular time when you were in prison in Rome had reached the world? That's what Paul said. And I take it that we take it literally. And I believe Paul means what he said. And you know, I did not realize the accuracy of this until I stood in Turkey at the city of Sardis. They dug up part of that Roman road that was there. And that's the road Paul came down out of the Galatian country on the way to Ephesus. And there for three years, the gospel sounded out and people were there from all over the Roman Empire. And already it had gone ahead to Rome and Paul had not gone there until he was taken there as a prisoner. And the gospel was being preached throughout the Roman Empire and the world. Here's the word cosmos, and it just simply means the Roman Empire of that day. And it means that the gospel at this time had penetrated into the farthest reaches of the Roman Empire. It had crossed over to Great Britain. It had crossed over to other places, every part of the Roman world had heard the gospel at this particular time. I tell you, friends, those early apostles were on the move, and I find it rather reluctant to try to criticize them. And he says here, it's coming to all the world, the Roman world, and it bringeth forth fruit. And where the gospel is preached, it'll bring forth fruit. Where the Word of God is given out, the content of the gospel is given out, it'll bring forth fruit. That's what he said, and it will. And by the way, I must confess, my faith was weak even on radio. I determined to give out the Word, but I'll be honest with you, I expected to fall on my face and see great failure. And you know, the biggest surprise of my life is, God blessed His Word. Was I surprised? I thought He'd let me down, but He didn't. He said He'd bless His Word. Count on Him, friends. It bringeth forth fruit as it doth also in you since the day ye heard of it and knew the grace of God and truth. And I'm overwhelmed today by the letters and the people I meet that say they were brought to Christ through this weak radio ministry of ours that is a Mickey Mouse operation if there ever was one. But God blesses His Word. And I just don't only believe it, I know it. I'm not even prepared to argue that with anybody today. Somebody comes along and says to me, I don't believe the Bible's the Word of God. I said, you don't? And they said, well, don't you want to argue? I said, no. They said, why? I said, because I know it's the Word of God. I don't believe it. I know it. Suppose somebody comes to me and says, 
Now, McGee, I want to argue with you whether you love your wife or not. I can give you several philosophical arguments that'll show that you don't love your wife. And you know that fellow might out-argue me, and he might whip me down intellectually. And if he did, and if he showed by logic and all types of argument that I don't love my wife, you know what I would say? I'd say, brother, I don't know about those arguments, but I want you to know one thing. I love my wife. I love my wife. I know that, you see. And I do not need these cogent, sophisticated, astute, esoteric arguments. There's some things we can know, friends. And we ought not to let what we don't know upset what we do know. And that's important for us to see today. Therefore, he says here, "...it bringeth forth fruit." as it doth also in you since the day ye heard of it and knew the grace of God in truth. Say, this is wonderful, is it not? Now, he says, as ye also learn of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant. Now, Epaphras apparently was the leader of the pastor of the church there in Colossae. Epaphras sounds like a medicine to me, but... Nevertheless, that's the name of the fellow. And he says, he's our dear fellow servant. Have you noticed how graciously Paul could talk about other servants of God? Those that were preaching the Word of God, Paul had something good to say about them. But when he found a rascal, he was just like our Lord. He would really move in, and he'd say what he thought about them. The Lord Jesus, oh, he was so merciful to sinners. That woman taken in adultery, she should have been stoned to death. And notice how gracious our Lord was. And then there is that arrogant Pharisee that came to the Lord Jesus and attempted to pass a compliment. We know that thou art a teacher come from God. We Pharisees, and when we know it, brother, that's it. Lord Jesus, oh, so gently and graciously pulled him down off of his high horse. And when he got through with him, he was dealing with him as plain little old Nicky, uh, little old Nicodemus trying to be somebody. And he's nothing in the world but just a religious robot. That's all, going through rituals. And the Lord Jesus brought him down where he could say, how can these things be? And then the Lord Jesus let him see the cross. How gracious he was in dealing with folk like that. And Paul is so gracious to these. Now, will you notice, who also declare unto us your love in the Spirit. Now, you're going to find there'll be no great emphasis in this epistle on the Holy Spirit. And what he's making clear to them that they would not be able to exhibit this love unless it was by the Holy Spirit. He says elsewhere, the fruit of the Spirit is love, and that is very important for us to see. And here, Paul will not dwell on that aspect. He's going to dwell on the person of Christ, and when he does, then the Holy Spirit will take the things of Christ and show them unto us. That's the important thing to see. Now we're coming to that. By the way, we're past the introduction now, and we have Paul's prayer 
for these. And here is one of the most wonderful prayers in the Scripture. And this is a prayer that I think touches all the bases. And you'll notice what Paul prays for here. The interesting thing is that today we find people praying for these things. And Paul makes it clear that we already have these things. I've heard prayers like this. Dr. Ironside puts it like this. He says, We pray thee, forgive us our sins and wash us in the blood of Jesus. Receive us into thy kingdom. Give us of thy Holy Spirit and save us at last for Christ's sake. Amen. And did you know that God has already answered every one of those petitions already. God has forgiven us all of our trespasses. We're cleansed by the blood of Christ. He's already translated us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Son of His love. And He sealed us with His Holy Spirit. And if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he's none of his. And He saved us eternally from the moment we believe the gospel. Therefore, we might... I think, rather thank him instead of petitioning him here. Instead of saying, we ask you to do this, we thank you that you've already done it. And now listen to Paul here in this wonderful prayer that he prays. He says, for this cause, now this is verse 9 of chapter 1 of Colossians, for this cause, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Now, this is great. This is the first thing. He prayed that they might be filled with the knowledge here. And that is epigenosis. Now, you see, these people, the heretics there, were the Gnostics. They pretended to have a super knowledge. And Paul says here, I pray that you might be filled with the knowledge, that you might have a super knowledge. The Gnostics boasted they had it. And Paul here confines this knowledge, though, of the will of God. And it must be in wisdom and spiritual wisdom and understanding. And now wisdom will occur Forty times in this epistle. We'll call attention to it again when we get to it. Now, will you notice verse 10? Here's the second thing he mentions. That ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing. Now, that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing. That is, pleasing to God. And that means that we're not going to be bowing down to men or attempt to please them. And then the third thing, being fruitful in every good work. That is, a Christian is a fruit-bearing branch, you see. We should bring forth fruit and increasing in the knowledge of God. Now, a Christian should not be static, but alive and growing in the Word of God. How important that is. Now, let me keep moving right along. In verse 11, we have here the fifth thing. Strengthened with all might according to his glorious power. And strength and power can only come from God. And they are produced by the Holy Spirit 
in patience and long-suffering and joyfulness, strengthened with all might. And it's unto all patience, you notice, and long-suffering with joyfulness. How wonderful. Verse 12, and now we come here for what he gives thanks for. Giving thanks now, and all our prayers should be filled with thanksgiving. Notice what he says, "...giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in life." Now, God, by his grace, has given us an inheritance with the saints in life. And we ought today to lay hold of that, believe God. And here the second thing is, "...who hath delivered us from the power of darkness, and translated us into the kingdom of the Son of his love. We've been delivered from the kingdom of Satan. We were dead in trespasses and sins, going according to the world. And now we've been translated into the kingdom of the Son of his love. And by the way, this is the present aspect of the kingdom of God here on earth today. The only place that you can have the kingdom of God here on earth, you can't build it. The only way in the world you can have it is open your heart and receive Christ as your Savior, and you've been translated into that kingdom yourself. This is a very wonderful thing. And we're told here, in whom we have redemption through his blood. Now, this, again, is a very wonderful thing, that we've been translated. We have forgiveness. And that is always, as we've said before, associated with the blood of Christ. God does not arbitrarily and sentimentally forgive sin. And redemption here means he paid a price and delivered us out of slavery. And we have these five wonderful things, and yet there are a great many people praying for all of these things today. My friend, they are yours. Why don't you thank him for them? That is the proper attitude of a believer today. We've come now to a very lofty section, an exalted section, and a grand section of this epistle, because the subject here is the person of Christ. And we can't say too much about him, and we'll never be able, certainly in this life, to comprehend him in all of his wonder and in all of his glory. Now, Paul writes here in verse 15, "...who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation." Now, this is a verse, as many of you know, that answers actually those today that deny his deity. Because to understand this verse is to realize how wonderful he really is. And Paul is attempting to answer here one of the oldest heresies in the church, which was Gnosticism. Now, one of these heresies that came along was Arianism. Arius of Alexandria, he said that the Lord Jesus Christ was a creature. And the Council of Nicaea answered him in 325 A.D., when it made the statement, the Son is very man of very man and very God of very God. 
And later on in the history of the church, Socinus propagated this heresy that Jesus was not God and we did not need a Savior from sin, that we were not totally depraved. And actually, this has been the basis of Unitarianism and many of the cults today, and one of them in particular, and you know which. Now, there are here nine marks of identification of Christ which makes him different from any other person who ever lived and superior to all of them. Now, we have two of those statements right here in this very first verse. We are told here first, who is the image of the invisible God. Now, this word here, image, is icon. Now, the interesting thing is, how could he be the image of the invisible God? Because you can't take a photograph of that which is invisible. And how would he be that? Well, John makes it very clear when John in his prologue to the gospel says, in the beginning was the Word. And that's a beginning that has no beginning because he had no beginning. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And then he said, the Word became flesh or was born flesh. And if you want the Christmas story in John's gospel, there it is. He was born flesh. And that's the way that he became the image of the invisible God. You know why? Because he is God. (laughs) If he wasn't God, he couldn't have been the image of the invisible God. Now, the second statement that is made here, he's the firstborn of all creation. Now, here again, we have this Tremendous, wonderful statement. And this reveals his relationship to the Father. And it's his position in the Trinity. Nowhere does the Scripture teach that he had his beginning at Bethlehem. We are told, remember in that great prophecy, that out of Bethlehem he would come for unto us a child is born, but unto us a son is given. He comes out of eternity and takes upon himself our humanity. But actually, Paul here is dealing with one of the philosophies of that day and one of the mystery religions. And the way that it worked was like this. It is the demiurge, and it means that God created a creature just beneath him, and then that creature created a creature underneath him, And then that creature created a creature underneath him. And you can just keep on going down the ladder as far as you want to. And finally, you come to a creature that created this universe. Now, that is the way they taught. The emanations as it was of God. And each one of these, an eon, creates another one and another one. Now, one of the first heresies in the church, Gnosticism, taught that Jesus was one of these. Now, what Paul is doing here, he's answering that. He is saying that he is the firstborn of all creation. He's back of all creation. He's not born in creation, but the word here is a very wonderful word, prototokos, before all creation. 
And he is the one that we have said that came down 1,900 years ago, and the Word became flesh. But he's talking here about, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. You see, he is the firstborn of all creation. You see, God is called the everlasting Father. The Son is called the everlasting Son. Now, if you have an everlasting God, Father, everlasting Son, there never was a time when he was begotten, you see. And that is something that is made very clear. The Lord Jesus is called in several places. He's called the firstborn of all creation. He's called the firstborn from the dead. He's called the only begotten. And you have here in verse 18 that he is the firstborn from the dead. And that is, of course, what the writer to the psalm meant when he said in the second psalm, verse 7, I will declare the decree the Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son this day, have I begotten thee. Well, if you would go back to the book of Acts, the 13th chapter, you'll find out that that great sermon Paul preached in Antioch of Pisidia in the Galatian country, he said that meant he was begotten from the dead. So that what we're talking about here is not a birth in Bethlehem. Do not use verse 15 here in this first chapter of Colossians for Christmas, friend. This is no Christmas verse. This does not speak of the fact that he was born in Bethlehem. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. And that means he has top priority of position. And it hasn't anything to do with his origin at all. And I think that you'd find that made clear in Psalm 89, 27. Also I will make him my firstborn higher than the kings of the earth. And therefore, what you have here in this verse is that Christ, as the eternal Son, holds the position of top priority to all creation. In other words, he is the creator. And you don't have this demiurge, a series of creatures being created one after another. He himself created all things. And that is the thing that he's making clear in this statement here. And how wonderful this is, by the way, and how important it is. Let me give you another verse or two in this connection. Over in Hebrews 1, 3, "...who being the brightness of his glory, and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high." That doesn't sound very much like he's a creature, does it? That is the second person of the Godhead. And in verse 7 of this chapter, "...and of the angels he saith, who maketh his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire." Now, the Lord Jesus is not one of those creatures. "...but unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom." 
So, friends, we're not talking here about a creature or the fact that the Lord Jesus was born a creature. We're talking here about the fact that he was God. And when he came into the world, the child was born, but the son was given, and he had come out of eternity. And as the angel said to Mary, that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Why? Because that's who he is. He was the Son of God before he came into this world. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. He is that. And that is what this verse means here. Now, let me move on to the next. We have a third great statement concerning him. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible. And whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. Now, will you notice this? Because this is a tremendous verse also. We are told here that all things were created by him. Well, if that's true, then the verse up there, when it says he's the firstborn of all creation, doesn't mean he was created. He's the one who did the creating. By him were all things created. And that clears up any question about Christ being a creator or a creature in verse 15. Now, we are told here, though, that there are two kinds of creation— visible and invisible. And this is something we'll have occasion later on to develop. But you'll notice that he mentions with the visible something that's quite interesting here. He says, "...whether there be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers." Now, these are gradations of the angelic hosts. I am not able to go into detail, but we are told that there are seraphim, there are cherubim, there are archangels, and then there are just common everyday vegetable variety of angels. And you have here the gradations of these spiritual powers, these spiritual intelligences, and we dealt with that, you'll remember, in Ephesians when we mentioned the fact that our enemy is a spiritual enemy today. And... He has this spiritual host that went with him, Satan. And these that went with him, they're divided the same way. So that we have these different gradations, and that is what we have in mind here. And I think that's something that I need to note, but I can't go into detail concerning that here. I will have occasion to come back to this when we get to the book of Daniel. And I'll go into a great deal of detail at that time. Now, the fourth thing, all things were created by him. Now, that's a great statement, is it not? All things were created by him and for him. Now, this is something that is quite wonderful. They were not only created by him, but they were created for him. Now, if you want to go out tonight and look up at the heavens, and if you can see them, you'll see a lot of stars. And you remember 
Many years ago, wise men looked into the heavens. They saw a particular star. Well, you go out and look into the heavens. You won't see that particular star, but you'll see stars. And you'll see one maybe over in a certain position. Have you ever wondered why it's in that position? Why it is in that part of the heavens? It's in that part of the heavens because that's where Jesus wanted it. Not only did he create all things, but they're created for him. And one of the most wonderful things in this connection is that we're told that we're heirs of God and joint heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, we've got a big hunk of real estate coming to us someday. Maybe a whole star that he's going to turn over to us. I don't know. I've often wondered. I think we're going to be very busy in eternity. And we are not going to be earthlings then. We'll be given a new body free of gravitation. We'll be living in a city called New Jerusalem. We'll be able to travel through God's vast universe. And I don't know what he's going to turn over to us. He made it all, and he created it, created it out of nothing. And he's going to run it to suit himself. This is his universe. And if you want to know... Why, a certain tree has a certain kind of leaf on it. That's the way he wanted it. (laughs) It was made by him and it's made for him. And we're going to be a part of that someday. We're going to enter into that. What an inheritance. I've never dwelt upon that very much because I've always felt like it's rather speculative, and I still think that it is. But I've often wondered what you and I are going to get someday. It's going to be wonderful when we get it. You know, down here, you and I live in a tent. These bodies of ours, Paul calls it that. Paul says, this earthly house of this tabernacle, this tent, be dissolved. That is, it'll just go right back to the ground if you put the body in the ground at death. And we've moved out, absent from the body, present with the Lord. We're at home with the Lord when we're absent from the body down here. And these old bodies that we've got, We walk around in them. And friends, today you may live in a home right now that costs $250,000. But I got news for you. You are really living in a flabby, old, frail tent. All of us are. These bodies of ours. But one of these days, I'm going to get a glorified body. And then I'm going to get an inheritance. And you can have your $250,000 house, my friend. You won't be in it long anyway, but I've got something coming up in eternity. And if you're God's child, you've got something coming up in eternity. I'm rather looking forward to it. Now, that's all things were created by him and for him. And I love it as it's put that way. Now, verse 17 And he is before all things. Now, he is before all things means that in the pre-incarnate Christ, all fullness dwells. And in the incarnate Christ, all fullness dwells. In him dwelleth all the fullness of Godhead bodily. We're going to be told that in this epistle. And we're made complete in him. He's before all things. He is the pre-incarnate Christ. Then we're told something else here. And by him all things consist. 
Now, that means he holds everything together. He's Elmer's glue as far as holding this universe together. A few years ago in our day, man did a very daring and I think now a very dastardly deed. He untied the Adam. The Lord Jesus, when he created the Adam, he tied each one of those little fellows together. And man did what he calls split the Adam. And believe me, did he release power. Have you ever stopped to think today the tremendous power that there is in the atoms of this universe? If man can take a bomb that probably you and I could lift, and blow this universe or blow this earth that we are living on to smithereens. Have you ever stopped to think of the power that's tied up in this vast physical universe? Who's holding this thing together? He not only created it, but he holds it together. And that, my friend, is a pretty good job itself of holding it all together. The Lord Jesus Christ is the one that does this. By him all things consist. And you have that, by the way, again, back here in Hebrews 1, 3, who being the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power. He holds everything together. When he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. He's a wonderful person, isn't he? He's a glorious person. Now, notice what is said about him here again. We're told here in verse 18 now, and I'm reading, and he's the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. He's the head of the body of the church. And that is the key, I think, to the epistle to the Colossians. And I'll tell you why. In the epistle to the Ephesians which is a companion epistle to Colossians, you have the emphasis upon the fact that the church is the body of Christ down here in the world. And the emphasis is upon the body. Now, here, the emphasis is upon the head of the body, and that is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the head of the body. And that, I believe, is a very important statement for us to note. Because when you go back to the epistle to the Ephesians, you'll find out in verse 22 of chapter 1, "...he hath put all things under his feet, gave him to be head over all things to the church." So that these are companion epistles. And in the epistle to the Philippians, which went along with these present epistles, why we see the church with feet walking through the world and the experience of the church, the experience of a believer. That is what a believer ought to experience. Now, as we move down into this verse here, he is also the firstborn from the dead. And that is, he's the only one that's back in a glorified body from the grave. He's the first fruits of them that sleep. And on the basis of his resurrection, our loved ones, and if the Lord should not come in our lifetime, then we too will be raised someday as he is. The thought that John gives us is, Beloved, it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. 
And then we have this statement, and this is the eighth statement in verse 18 here, that in all things he might have the preeminence. And this is, may I say, a very wonderful statement. fact of the matter is, you can't think of anything more wonderful than this, that in all things he might have the preeminence. The will of Christ must prevail throughout all of God's creation. That's God's intention. Even in spite of the rebellion of man down here, God says, "...yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion." God is moving forward today, undeviatingly, unhesitatingly, uncompromisingly, toward one goal, and that is to put Jesus on the throne of this little world on which you and I live that is in rebellion against God today. That is the objective of God in this particular connection. Now, we come here to verse 19. It says, "...for it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell." And that's one of the important words that you have in this epistle. Over in Philippians, we saw it was the kenosis. That is, he emptied himself. But he didn't empty himself because he did lay aside his prerogatives of deity and his glory. But he was God when he came to this earth. And in him all fullness dwelt, all the pleroma dwelt, the full fullness of God. So that when he was down here upon this earth, why, what you have is that the pleroma was at home in Jesus. He was 100% God down here. He wasn't 99 and 44, 100% God, 100%. And that little baby that was lying yonder 1,900 years ago on the bosom of Mary and seemed so helpless, he could have spoken this universe out of existence he is man of very man. He is God of very God. That's who he is. That's who we're talking about. He's different here. Now, we saw in verse 15 his relationship to the Father. Then we saw his relationship to creation. And then his relationship to the church. And his relationship, beginning with verse 20, to the cross. Now, verse 20 we have the objective work of Christ for sinners from verses 20 through 23. Now, let's look at this because here we have the things that he's done for us. Will you notice? And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven... Now, this is a very important verse, and I'd have you note it here because there are certain things we want to look at. He made peace through the blood of his cross. That means that by his paying the penalty on the cross for your sin and my sin, that it's made peace between God and the sinner. So that God today is not approaching man on the basis of saying, Look here, fella, I'm against you. You've been rebelling against me, and you're a sinner, and I'm going to have to punish you. 
No, God is saying to the lost sinner today and to you and me, he said, I've already borne the punishment. I've already paid the penalty. And I'm saying to you today that you can come to me. And if you come to me, then there's peace. There's been peace made. And that's what Paul meant in Romans 5, 1, when he said, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you ever notice that peace here has been made through the blood of his cross, that's an interesting statement. And you'll notice that Paul puts forgiveness of sin along with the blood of the cross. You see, God today is not a disagreeable neighbor that's waiting around the corner to pounce on you and to find fault with you. God has his arms outstretched, and he's saying to the sinner, he says, Come, and I'll give you a redemption rest. And now he goes on to say something else here that's very important, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you see, when God forgives, it's always because the penalty has been paid. God never forgives until the penalty has been paid. Penalty has been paid for your sin. Therefore, God can forgive you. And now, by him to reconcile all things unto himself. Now, that word reconciliation. Reconciliation is toward man. Redemption is toward God. In other words, what God is saying to the sinner today, he says, and Paul says that we're ambassadors for Christ, and we beseech you that you be reconciled to God. Well, let's see just how Paul said that. Over in 2 Corinthians 5.18, he says, "...and all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation." To wit, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation." Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. Now, that is exactly what God is saying to man today. God says, I'm reconciled to you. Will you be reconciled to me? And that is the thing. A great many people say, you've got to do something to win God over. My friend, God's trying to win you over. The shoe's on the other foot. God today is asking man to be reconciled. He is reconciled. But now, here's a statement that causes some people to get the foolish and fond notion that everybody's going to be saved, because it says, "...by him to reconcile all things to himself." And they dwell on that a great deal. I don't know why people don't pay a little more attention to the grammar that is here. And I think if we'd listen to grammar, and maybe a little to Grandpa for that matter, but we ought to listen to grammar. And here, he'll reconcile all things. Well, now, what are the all things? Well, it's actually limited to the all things that are to be reconciled, that are appointed for reconciliation. Now, I can give you a verse that I think might be helpful in this particular connection. Over in Philippians 3.8, Paul says, Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. 
Now listen, he says here, I count all things but loss. What are the all things here? That means everything in the world? No. I count all things that he had to lose. And he had already enumerated them, the pluses that he had in his life, the religious pluses that he had, and he'd already enumerated them. And those are the all things. Paul couldn't lose something he didn't have. And therefore, it's those things that he could lose. Now, what is it here? The all things? Well, it's the all things that are appointed for reconciliation. Now he says here, and he limits it, "...by him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven." Now, that's another statement that interests me a great deal. And I'll tell you why. Because of the fact that we have here something that's quite interesting. He doesn't say things under the earth. Now, a moment ago, I gave you Ephesians 1.22, you'll recall. And he hath put all things under his feet, gave him to be head over all things in the church. Now, what are the all things that are going to be? Well, over in Philippians, he says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. Now, everything is going to acknowledge the lordship of Jesus. But that doesn't mean they're all reconciled, because he mentions here just the things in earth and things in heaven. doesn't mention things under the earth. My friend, don't listen to this deception today, this siren song, that, well, it's all going to work out. We can just depend on God being nice and sweet. He'd be a nice, pleasant little old lady, and I don't mean to be irreverent, but he's just going to be nice and sweet to everybody, and you can depend on that. My friend, don't bank on that, because the things that are reconciled are things in heaven and earth, not under the earth. Under the earth, we'll have to bow to him, but they're not reconciled to him at all. This is the place, and this is the life that we're to be reconciled to God. This is a tremendous verse, as you can see. Now he says in verse 21, and you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled. Now, God didn't wait until we promised to scrub our faces, put on our Sunday clothes, and go to Sunday school before he agreed to do this. It was while you and I were in rebellion against him and by wicked works that he reconciled us to himself. No man and say that I'm lost because God has not made adequate provision for me. You're lost because you want to be lost. You're lost because you're in rebellion against God. And then he mentions here something that I think is quite interesting, and I'd like to emphasize it. And you that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, Yet now if he reconciled. Now, the enemies in your mind, that reminds us that there is a mental alienation from God as well as a moral alienation. Now, a great many people think, well, you're lost just because, well, you went out and got drunk. My friend, that's not the reason anyone's lost. You're lost because 
your mind is alienated from God today. That's the reason that you're lost. And this, I think, explains the fierce antagonism to God on the part of some so-called intellectuals. The hatred against God is something that, unless you proclaim the gospel in certain groups, you never realize how it was. Many of you know that I had the funeral of a certain movie star out here in California some time ago. And that Hollywood crowd came. And one of the television newscasters made the statement, and I appreciated it. He made it. I understand he's a Christian. He said the crowd heard something today that never heard before. But I also saw something I hadn't seen before. I had never seen so much hatred in the eyes of men and women as I saw when you attempt to present Jesus Christ and how wonderful he is and how he wants to save. That's the alienation that's in the mind and the heart of man today. Now, will you notice, he goes on here, and he says in verse 22, "...in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight." Now, the body of his flesh, I think, is here an explicit declaration that Christ suffered not in just appearance, but he suffered in a real body because that was one of the heresies of Gnosticism in that day. Now, unblameable means without blemish. You see, this was the requirement for a sacrificial animal. And he is able to present us unblameable. Why? Because we are? No, because he took our place. And you and I can't present perfection to God. And God can't accept anything short of perfection. Therefore, he can't save us by our works or our character. We just can't meet it. And then this word unreprovable is as unaccusable or unchargeable. In other words, it's God that justifies us. And if God justifies us, well, who's going to bring a charge against us? He's the one that's cleared us. And how wonderful this is. Then he says here in verse 23, if ye continue in the faith grounded and settled. Now, this is not a conditional clause that you have here that's based on the future. He's not talking about that. This is the if that we've seen before that Paul uses. It's the if of argument. It is not something that shall be if something else is, but it's rather this, the if of argument. And this if of argument... I think needs to be looked at like this. It has no reference to the future. It's not something that shall be if something else is, but it's something was if something else is. That is, if you today are a child of God, that is the point that he's making here. If you're a child of God, you're going to continue in the faith, grounded and settled. And be not moved from the hope of the gospel. You won't be if you are a child of God right now, which ye have heard and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. Paul loved to always go back and rest his glorious privilege that he had of being a minister of Jesus Christ. 
And friends, I consider that the greatest honor that can come to any person. And I thank God every day for the privilege that he's given me of declaring his word. I just think there's nothing quite like that. Now, we come here in verse 24 to the subjective work of Christ for saints. And this is another division now from verses 24 through 29. That is the remainder of this chapter. He says here in our translation, "...who now rejoice in my sufferings for you, and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ and my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church." Now, if you want a free translation... I have it in my notes. Here it is. Now I, Paul, rejoice in the midst of my sufferings for you, and I am filling up in my flesh that which is lacking of the afflictions of Christ for his body's sake, which is the church. Now, Paul is saying here that it was necessary for him to fill up in suffering that which was lacking in the suffering of Christ. Isn't that a startling statement? Somebody says, well, that contradicts what you've been preaching, that he suffered for us and paid the penalty, and there's nothing that we are to do for salvation. And I still think that's true. In fact, I know that's true. But does this verse contradict it? No, my friend, this verse does not contradict it at all. Now, Paul was suffering in his body for the sake of Christ's body. Now, the implications here are that there was something lacking in the sufferings of Christ. It would seem that. And then the second implication is that it's necessary for Paul, and I think in turn for all believers, to make up that which was lacking. In other words, that suffering I must bear, he shares, and it completes his suffering. Now, that's rather startling because this is the epistle that we called attention last time that reveals the fullness of Christ. In him dwelleth all the fullness, the pleroma of the Godhead bodily. What a wonderful thing that everything is centered in him. How wonderful that is. And we saw that last time, that in all things that he might have the preeminence. And yet here... It would seem that there is something yet to be done. And Paul wrote in prison, by the way, says, I have fulfilled all of this. Now, you remember that there were two things that the Lord Jesus said to Ananias, the reason that he had saved Paul was going to use him. First of all, he says, he's a chosen vessel to me to bear my name to the Gentiles. And second, I'm going to show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. And in prison, that's when Paul wrote, I fulfill this. I have done that. Now, I want to say right here at the beginning, in this very mooted verse, uh, and I hasten to say it, the sufferings of Paul were not redemptive. There's no merit in his suffering for others or even for himself for his redemption. And Paul is very careful in the selection of words here. In other words, Paul was accustomed to speak of the redemption of Christ not as a suffering, but a cross, a death, and his blood. 
In other words, there's ministerial suffering and mediatorial sufferings. Mediatorial is the sufferings that Christ did for us. Now, we need to distinguish between the sufferings of Christ. And there are two general classifications, and there's a sharp distinction between them. And I want to make that today to try to clarify this passage of Scripture. There is that suffering which he endured which cannot be shared. And there is the suffering of Christ which he endured which can be shared. Now, let's look at the sufferings of Christ which cannot be shared because there's a sharp line of demarcation between the two. Now, first of all, he suffered as a man. He was the son of man. The suffering that's common to humanity. When he, in his incarnation, 1,900 years ago, born there in Bethlehem, and when he was born, I've often wondered, did he cry like other little babies that come into the world? I rather think that he did. And he was clad in the garment of that frail flesh that you and I have. And in that flesh, he could get hungry, and he could become thirsty, and he was lonely, and he could suffer anguish and pain and sorrow, and he could go to sleep in the boat because he was weary and tired. And that is a human suffering. And we all have that. For every man must bear his own burden, Paul says. There are burdens that we must bear alone. We're born alone. He was. And feel pain alone. There are certain problems that you and I must face and face alone. There's a sorrow that comes no one can share it with us. We become sick. No one can take our place. I remember when my daughter was just a little girl. We were crossing the desert coming from back east. It was the hot summertime, and we got into Arizona. And she'd been sick. And my wife took a fever, and we were alarmed. It had gone to 104. And we got her to the hospital there in Phoenix. And as she was lying there with that high fever, as I looked at her, I'd have given anything in the world at that moment if I could have taken her place. I'd have taken that fever gladly, but you can't do it. We can't share these things. And friends, there comes a time when you and I go down through the valley of the shadow of death. And humanly speaking, we're going to die alone. That's the reason it's so wonderful to be a Christian and know that Jesus is with you at that time because nobody else can go through that with you at that time. Therefore, he suffered as a man, as a human being. And then there's another suffering that he couldn't share. He suffered as the Son of God. He identified himself with God, and no other mortal has ever had to endure what he went through. He was made like unto his brethren, and he himself hath suffered, but he suffered as the Son of God. Now, I dwelt quite a bit when we were in the Psalms on Psalm 69 of how he was made the song of the drunkards in that little town of Nazareth. He suffered there. He said he made sackcloth, his garment. Oh, what he suffered, because he was the Son of God. And then you remember they arrested him. And the soldiers of the high priests, they mocked him. They put a robe on him and a 
crown of thorns on him. Then they played a game, a Roman game, and it's known as hot hand. They blindfolded him. Then all his soldiers would hit him with the fist. And then they'd take the blindfold off and ask him which one, because one would not hit him. And, of course, he'd never guess the right one. They wouldn't let him guess the right one, even if he did. And then they would put the blindfold on again and play the game again and all pound him. The Lord Jesus Christ was marred more than any man. I think they'd beaten his face into a pulp when they put him on the cross. He suffered in a way that you and I never have had to suffer. And then there's another suffering he went through that no one can share. He suffered as the sacrifice for the sin of the world, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. Now, into this suffering, we cannot enter at all. We can appropriate his death as the fact that he took our place, but we can't enter into it. He alone went to the cross. He was forsaken of God and man and put a crown of thorns on him. But they put that on others. But his was not the blood of martyrdom. It was the blood of a sacrifice. And in those first three hours, man did his worst at that time. And in the last three hours, God did his best. And in the first three hours, he's hanging on the cross from 9 to 12. It was light. And man was there. Then from 12 to 3 in the afternoon, the ninth hour, why, it was dark. And God was doing his best because at that time, that cross became an altar on which the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world was there. And for Christ also hath once suffered for sin, the just for the unjust. Now, that's a suffering you and I cannot bear. He can't share that with anyone else. Now, there are sufferings of Christ which we can share. And that's what Paul's talking about here. I'm going to mention, too, he suffered for righteousness' sake. In the synagogue yonder in Nazareth, in his own hometown, he says, "...now ye seek to kill me, a man that hath told you the truth." Just think of that. They sought to kill him because he was suffering for righteousness' sake. And he made the statement, if ye suffer for righteousness' sake. And we're told very definitely, Paul writing to a young preacher in 2 Timothy 3.12, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. May I say to you, if you today are going to live for God, if you are going to take a stand for the right, and for God, you'll find out that you'll be passed by. Many men are passed by today in the distribution of earthly honors. And God's man, the world will damn you with faint praise, and they'll praise you with faint damns. That's the way the world treats God's man today. And when I see how Certain athletes are lauded and praised, and certain in the entertainment world are praised, and certain politicians are praised, and certain professors. But God's man today, my friend, is not praised. You'll suffer for righteousness' sake if you stand for the things that are right in this world. And Paul could say in Romans eight thirty six, as it is written, for thy sake we're killed 
All the day long we counted his sheep for the slaughter. That's the position you'll take if you stand for him. And then the second type of suffering that we can share is we shall suffer in the measure in which we identify ourselves with Christ. John in 1 John 4:17 said, "Because as he is, so are we in this world." And the Lord Jesus made it very clear in John 15:18 he says, "If the world hate you, ye know that it hated me, and if you were of the world, the world would love its own, but you're not of the world, and the world will hate you." The popularity of the Christian with the world is an inverse ratio with his popularity with Christ. My friend, if you're popular with the world as a Christian, you're not popular with Christ. And if you're going to be popular with Christ, you're not going to be popular in this world. And the child of God today is to take his place, identify himself with Christ, You remember that the Lord Jesus today suffers through his church. Remember, he said to Saul of Tarsus, he said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And this young Pharisee Saul was startled and puzzled. He said, what do you mean? I'm not persecuting you. I'm persecuting these Christians. But he was persecuting Christ. And Peter could say in his epistle, 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial that shall try you, but rejoice inasmuch ye are partakers of his suffering. And may I say to you that he suffered as a human being, but that was not his redemptive death upon the cross. These are things you and I can't enter in. But there's one thing that is for sure. If the gospel is to go forward today, Somebody must suffer. I remember hearing the late Dr. George Gill put it like this. He said, you know, when a child is born in this world, some woman has to travail in pain. And the reason, he said, that there are not more people being born again is because there are not enough believers willing to travail. This is not popular today. But that's what Paul is talking about. All of us would love to see revival. And we talk glibly about witnessing and about living for God and all that sort of thing. My friend, may I say to you, if the gospel is going to go forward today and people are going to be saved, somebody is going to have to pay a price. I wonder how much you're paying today to get the word out. Now, Paul goes on to say here, he says, where of I made a minister according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. Now, Paul here uses the word dispensation. And when we were back in Ephesians, I dealt with that in a great deal of detail. The word dispensation is the word economy, even by transliteration. And we have political economy, domestic economy, And actually, there are different economies in which God deals with the world. But, my friend, always it's based on the redemption of Jesus Christ. Before he came to this world, man brought a little lamb, looking to his coming in faith. Because they were not saved by the little lamb. They were saved by Christ who died for them. Now, we don't bring a lamb today because it's now a historical fact that Jesus has already come. 
And all you have to do is to trust him today. And Paul, therefore, can say here, I made a minister according to the dispensation of God, this new economy in which we've come of the church, which is given to me for you, that is, actually to the Gentiles up there at Colossae, to fulfill the Word of God. This had been something that was hidden in the Old Testament. But now God says the gospel must go to the Gentiles. And he says, "...even the mystery which hath been hid from ages..." and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints. Now, we have seen what that mystery was, something not revealed in the Old Testament and now revealed. We saw in Ephesians that that mystery was that not the Gentiles would be saved, but that something new was going to happen. God would now put Israel on the same basis as Gentiles. All are lost. All have sinned. All have come short. Now he's making something new. He's taking both Jew and Gentile, taking men out of all races, putting them in something new, and that's the church. That was never revealed in the Old Testament, but it's now being revealed. Even the mystery, it's been hid from ages, from generations. It's now made known to his saints. Paul wasn't the only one that had this, as some people seem to think. It was made known to his saints in that day to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. What is it? Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That is, you and I today have been brought into something new, the church. And the church has a glorious prospect ahead of it. We're in Christ today. The minute you trust Christ... The Holy Spirit baptizes you, puts you in the body of believers. What a glorious, wonderful thing. Now he says, "...whom we preach, warning every man." Now, the gospel is not what we preach, it's whom we preach. No man has ever preached the gospel that hasn't preached Christ. You see, Christ is the gospel. He's eternal life, John said. John says, we're going to make known to you this eternal life. We've seen eternal life. Well, who did he see? Christ. And my friend, today you either have him or you don't have him. The gospel is Christ. It's what he has done for us in his death, his resurrection, and what he's going to do in the future, whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Now, there's something else. We're to teach I believe that there are two things that we as ministers today should do. We should preach the gospel. We're not only called to win sinners to Christ, but to save them from the wrath to come. That's wonderful. But I am today to seek to make men and women faithful members of a church, a local church. And that's the reason I think that we have the support so many pastors across this country today. I'm trying to help the churches. And if I don't, I'm not fulfilling my ministry because I'm not only to preach the gospel, but I'm to build up people that they might be good, well, let me say it, good church members, that they might be faithful there, they might grow in grace, and that they might indeed serve Christ in a local assembly. 
This, my friend, is something. I want to tell you it's quite wonderful. Now, Paul says, "...whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily." Now, this is something I think is very personal and quite wonderful. He says, "...this is what I'm laboring to do, and I'm striving." And this word strive means to agonize according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. And oh, that's the desire, should be the desire of everyone today that's working for Christ, is that he might work in us mightily, doing two things, getting out the Word of God, the gospel, that men might be saved, saved from the wrath to come, and then to build them up in the faith. Now, those are the two things that, as ministers, that we're to do today. Those are two things the church should be doing today. It's very important. And that brings us, by the way, now to the conclusion of chapter 1. We've been here a long time, but we've been talking about Christ and what He's done for us, what He is doing for us, what He's going to do for us. And that takes a lot of time to tell all of that. 